The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. White had no doubt what would happen if he didn't succeed. Previous agents on the case had been banished to distant outposts or cast from the Bureau entirely. Hoover had said, there's no excuse offered for failure. White was also aware that several of those who had tried to catch the killers had themselves been killed. From the moment he walked out of Hoover's office, he was a marked man. And I have a wonderful announcement. CrimeCon 2024 is in Nashville, May 31st to June 2nd. If you plan to attend and you have not gotten your CrimeCon badge, you can use my code, all lowercases, MURDERSHELF, and save 10%. I cannot wait to see you again. I'm thinking about doing some kind of meetup or something, so I'll try to arrange it as the schedule comes out and we can see when we have free time. You can always find me on Podcast Row. Yes, I'm going to be there again. And I'm always around in the evening grabbing some food and drinks. So I'm so looking forward to CrimeCon in May. And remember the code, MURDERSHELF. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Tara. And I'm Jill. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life true crime book club turned podcast. And we definitely encourage you to read along with us, but if not, we certainly do the heavy lifting for you. Each month, we discuss a book that we've pulled off our murder shelf. And as we like to do an in-depth review of each book, you can certainly anticipate roughly three separate episodes for every series. We hope you are staying safe and healthy, and thank you to everyone out there continuing to tune in. And we just wanted to say a few words about what's been going on out there in our communities. Here at Murder Shelf Book Club, we have always advocated for the voice of the victim. We know they are not just victims, they have names, they have families, they have lives, and they have futures unrealized because they are taken from us. Lights have gone out in communities around the world for those who have been lost. And now is no different. We continue to stand up for what is right and to fight for justice. We cannot be more proud to be a part of the true crime community with the outpouring of support for our Black and POC communities. We will continue to stand with you and we will not be silent. So thank you again for always tuning in with us. Also, another update that we do have, especially from going back to our first series ever on I'll Be Gone in the Dark, told you there is going to be an HBO series coming out. And guess what? That's going to hit HBO later this month, June 28th. So be ready and be watchful. So Jill, can you tell us what we're pulling off our murder shelf today? Oh, I can, but I have to tell you, I am so excited about HBO. I'll be gone in the dark. I mean, how are they going to present this story? All right, so you start out with the Visalia Ransacker. You've also got the East Area Rapist, then the murderer, the original Night Stalker, and then the Golden State Killer. Oh my god, how are they going to cover all this? I know, and I honestly can't wait because I think this is where they caught Pat Oswalt's reaction to catching the killer, especially after yeah. what we know about Michelle. So looking forward to it. Oh, I really am. Okay, so what are we pulling off the murder shelf? Well, today we're going to be discussing Killers of the Flower Moon 
The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Graham. This book is fabulous. It is legit a lot of fun to read. It is murder, mystery, intrigue. It's like the first Mission Impossible, which was probably the best. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. They just showed it on CBS <laughs> and a movie night, and I was like, wow, I can't believe how good this is. I love movie night. I'm so glad it's back. I know. That is one positive that has come out of pandemic. Mm-hmm. I'll take it. But this has undercover agents, disguises, misinformation, explosions. Oh, my! I mean, it's, it is. David Grant weaves us this tale of the Osage Nation from Oklahoma, who became rich in the late 1800s due to this massive reservoir of oil that churned beneath their lands. Now, we aren't just talking kind of rich. We are talking mega wealthy. All right, mansions, multiple cars, white servants, catered parties. They had made a really good deal for themselves after terrible pain and unbelievable hardship. We can't begin to understand the plight of the Native American people, but Grand does an excellent job of giving us the history of the Osage, understanding where they came from, and how they came to be the richest people in the nation. Just let that lay there for a minute. Mm -hmm. The wealthiest people in the nation. Wow. However, there is a killer among them. The members of the Osage are dying one by one. And given it's the 1920s, we are in the last vestiges of the Wild West. And the law is really fluid. Investigative techniques were more or less in their infancy. Hardly anyone in law enforcement is properly trained in the art of deduction. After years of trailing leads and evidence falling to the wayside, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the Bureau of Investigation, which will soon be our FBI as we know it today, is going to step in and send one of his most trusted agents, Tom White, former Texas Ranger, to weed out the culprits. Now, going undercover... White and his team infiltrate Osage territory to discover who's responsible, and they find out one of the shocking conspiracies in American history. It's crazy. I know a lot of murder bookies have read this book already, so I hope we do this book justice, because this book is nuts. And it has everything. I couldn't stop reading it. It's three in the morning, and I'm blurry-eyed, and I wanted to keep reading. We'll tell you, we're in the greater Philadelphia area had some crazy storms come through this week where a lot of us lost power. Some people even for days. Jill didn't have power for, what, two, three days almost? Almost three days, yeah. So the night that you lost power, I was reading this by candlelight. I couldn't <laughs> do anything else. It's like I had zero power. I didn't even have internet. Like I felt like I was swept back to the 1800s, early 1900s where... Here I am. I could not put this book down. Like, that is how badly I wanted to read this. Yes. You know, I hope people appreciate how much we tell our murder bookies to read the book. They're so rich. They're so good. And it's just like being turned into a movie, which this one we'll talk about is. But, I mean, the book is always the best thing to read first. Oh, it's wonderful. And I will say, David Grant, the author, he is an excellent storyteller. First and foremost, he is a staff writer at The New Yorker. 
However, you may most likely be familiar with one of his other novels, which was a bestseller and chosen as best book of the year by the New York Times and the Washington Post, and that was The Lost City of Z. And it was about the search for this city in the Amazon with some English explorers. Just like this story, he weaves in history, politics of the day, anything you can imagine in terms of going on an expedition. Like This book has everything. And it actually was also turned into a major motion picture starring Charlie Hunnam and Robert Pattinson. Mm-hmm. Twilight. I preferred his role in this movie to Edward Cullen. <laughs> but um, it, it definitely is a really good movie as well. And Grant also has another book floating around out there called The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, which is a collection of true crime mysteries. And, you know, this, one of those stories is actually turned into a movie, too, with Robert Redford. <laughs> The old man and the gun. But, I mean, I guess that's just a testament to Graham's writing. It's just so good. It's descriptive. It's entertaining. And it's fun. And even though we understand the atrocities committed against the Native Americans and just other instances of injustice back in the day and even continuing into now, he also brings just that touch of lightness and insight into these investigative techniques of the day, which it just makes for a fascinating and a compelling read. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree completely. Killers of the Flower Moon is also going to be made into a movie, so I have to ask Mr. Grand, what is your formula, please? Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've been waiting to read this book. It's been on my list for so long, so I'm happy we finally decided to do it. And it's going to be a Leo DiCaprio special. He is my husband. He's been my husband since I was 11. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of a fan, huh? <laughs> yes. I've, I've loved him for a long time. He just doesn't know that we're married. <laughs> Andy knows. Uh, I think he's a little jealous every time I bring it up. Yep. Like he looks the other way. Yep. Which is why we're not married. <laughs> but um, I actually did read something somewhere that this might actually be released as an release on Apple TV Plus. So maybe not even in the movie theaters, which could be considering pandemic and what's been going on. I guess I'll have to cancel my Amazon Prime membership and get Apple Plus for a little. I have to tell you, I canceled HBO after Game of Thrones ended. And now with I'll Be Gone in the Dark, I'm getting it back. Great trial, who knows? (laughs) There's too many things on too many different areas to watch, and it's almost kind of like just paying for cable again. Yep. It's funny because I've been waiting for this to be made as well. But I know Robert De Niro is actually slated to play William Hale. I'm sure Leo will most likely play Tom White. Unless he wants to reprise his role as a young J. Edgar Hoover, I'd be totally down with that. I think he'd make an outstanding Tom White. Can't wait to tell you more about him. I'm hungry after talking about Leo. What'd you make for us? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, since we're talking about the Osage and Native Americans, I absolutely did some research. I, I know. Imagine what? you're shocked. I know. So I found a recipe on a traditional sauce called wuzapi. It's a berry sauce made from frozen berries, blackberries, blueberries, cherries, huckleberries, chokeberries, even cranberries. And you use at least three types of them from what I have read. And frozen works just fine because that actually will add just the right amount of water so you don't have to add anything else to it. And the wasabi can be as thick as pudding or even a more jam consistency. Just really depends on your personal preference. 
Now, you can add a bit of honey or sugar or stevia if you prefer, you know, depending on how sweet you want to make it. But the highlight here are the flavors of the berries themselves. So I'd go lightly before adding too much to it. You cook it in a crock pot. You might want to put it in a blender after that and you blend it up. Now, this can go on bread, biscuit, waffles, pancakes, even ice cream. I'm sorry. Heated over the top of ice cream. Oh, my gosh. Now, traditionally, you would serve it on top of something called fry bread, which is a very, very important Native American treat. Now, this varies by region, but generally it's a cornmeal or a flour-based milk with maybe an egg or lard, vegetable oil salt, baking powder, put it all together, and you make like a a biscuit-type bread. And I have to tell you, it is terrific. I had it over biscuits. You're sending me some, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, when quarantine is over. We're getting closer. I know. Moving into the yellow phase, we're that much closer. It's really amazing. I'm excited. I'm excited to try this. Was that be? And surprise, we're in June now. It's rosé season. So that is what I have today. From Wine Awesomeness, another surprise, I know. Surprises. Mm-hmm. Rosé, Wine Awesomeness. I think this one is going to pair perfectly with all the berries. It's a 2019 Palula Rosé from Southern France. And this is a typical rosé of the region. And in saying typical, I don't mean boring or meh. Like, this is the premier region to get rosé is just good pink juice. It's 12.5%, which is normally what you see in a red wine. 70% Grenache, 30% uh, Syrah. It's light, it's tart, and it's crisp. It's not sweet at all. And it really mellows out on the tongue, and it's good for drinking on its own, or even with the wasabi, or maybe something a little bit lighter, too. Mm. But I can't really put together a better description than what Wine Awesomeness wrote for it, and they said, this juice is incredibly fresh and vibrant with notes of citrus and peaches that melt away into a wave of white flowers blowing the Mediterranean Sea breeze. Oh, that sounds so good. That's good. Um, it usually goes for about $17 a bottle on Wine Awesomeness. I could do that. I had a rosé not too long ago that was uh, not what I was hoping for. So I will definitely try out this one. This sounds really tasty. You cannot go wrong with provincial rosé. I do like to explore other rosés, but if you're looking to not make any mistakes, southern France, Provence. Provence. You can't go wrong. Okay, as we step back in time a little bit, it was May 24th, 1921, when Molly Burkhart feared that her sister Anna Brown had gone missing. The Osage referred to May as the flower-killing moon, where the spring flowers died away as the large moon ushers in the heat of the summer. She had already lost her sister Minnie to a mysterious disease that took her at the young age of 27. Mysterious because Minnie had always been in perfect health. Now, Molly feared the worst. Anna was known to go out drinking and dancing, even during Prohibition and she would always turn up the next morning. However, this time Anna had not seen her for three days. Now, Molly Burkhart and her sisters were part of the Osage Nation. In the 1870s, the tribe was unceremoniously booted from their lands in Kansas to a rocky, 
almost inhospitable piece of land down in Oklahoma where our story takes place. What seemed a worthless territory produced more oil than anyone could imagine, and people paid exorbitant fees for leases and royalties. A royalty check was issued to every member listed on the Osage Rolls, a roster of every member of the Osage tribe. That check grew bigger and bigger each year, and around the time of the opening of the book, the Osage were bringing in roughly about $30 million a year. That's $400 million at the time the book was written, which was in 2017. In fact, the Osage were considered the wealthiest people in the world per capita. Per capita. Yeah. World. World. Not just the United States, the world. You would think that would earn them some respect. Would hope. But no. So reporters love to write about the Osage displaying their wealthy riches. Mansions, chandeliers, diamond rings, fur coats, chauffeured cars. But there was this undertone, reporters displaying the Osage is still primitive. Expensive cars surrounded a campfire as they roasted meat or danced ceremony that the members attended via a private plane. Oil was a blessing and a curse, and Molly Burkhart was a traveler in the mist, one to take charge of the tribe experience. Rapid change. Now, Molly didn't spend her money like some of the other tribes people did. But she did have a big house, she had several cars, and some servants who were called Indian pot pickers, and those were usually African Americans or Mexicans. She married a white man named Ernest Burkhart, who had often driven her about town. And Ernest was a young man from Texas who worked for his uncle, William Hale, doing odd jobs. And Molly and Ernest fell in love, and everyone could see that love. He even learned Osage to the point where he was fluent enough to speak with her in her native tongue. Yet, it definitely wasn't easy for them to marry, she being an Indian and he a white man. Her sisters had all married white men, but Molly felt a pull to preserve the traditional ways of her tribe and go forward with an arranged marriage. But her family, who practiced a mix of traditional and Catholic beliefs, felt that she should follow her heart and marry the man that she loved. And her and Ernest were married in 1917, and by 1921, where we find ourselves now in the book, they had two children, Elizabeth and James. And May 21st was the last time that Molly had seen her sister, Anna. She was drunk at a party that Molly was hosting. And Molly knew that Anna wasn't herself. She'd recently divorced her husband and spent time at the oil fields boom towns. And a U.S. government official described these places with harsh words. Quote, all the forces of dissipation and evil are here found. Gambling, drinking, adultery, lying, thieving, and murdering. Not to mention that prohibition was in full swing, but here we are. And one of Anna's servants would later describe her as a woman who drank a lot of whiskey and had loose morals with white men. Anna would continue to drink at the party, fighting with her family, fighting with others, just kind of causing a scene. And the underlying tensions were burning, so this is what we're talking about in terms of the social hierarchy of the territory, even though they are extremely wealthy. Ernest's family members were heard to mutter things about the quote-unquote Redskins, in whose company they shared. Molly took small pleasures, though, in having her white servants attend to those who complained. Although the Osage were at the top of the pecking order because of their wealth, 
they were still resented by many in the town. Yeah, they were still resented. So Anna sometimes dated Molly's husband's younger brother, Brian. And she told him at the party that if he fooled around with another woman, she'd kill him. Now, Brian brought Anna home that night. He insisted that he brought her straight home and watched her go into the house. But still, no one had seen Anna. Now, come on. As anyone who's watched a true crime program knows, Brian is the one to be suspicious of. He is the last person who saw Anna, and I'd be all over him if that was my sister. But Molly is still not panicking. She knows her sister could have gone to Oklahoma City or even Kansas City for a good time. Maybe she was dancing, and maybe she'd come home soon. So to add fuel to the fire, another tribe member was also missing, Charlie Whitehorn. Now, he was a young Osage man who had disappeared the week before on May 14th. David Grant notes that he was very popular among both the Whites and the members of his own tribe. So now we have two missing Osage. Now, a week after Anna disappeared, two bodies were found. One was found at the base of an oil derrick near downtown Pawhuska. The body was badly decomposed, shot execution style, two bullet holes in the forehead. A letter in the corpse's pocket identified the body as Charlie Whitehorn. Roughly at the same time, at the Three Mile Creek near Fairfax, a young boy discovered the body of a woman and the body was so disfigured by decomposition that the undertaker, who knew Anna Brown and had known she was missing, still couldn't make the identification. Scott Mathias, who had been notified of the body and was also in charge of Anna's financials, called Molly. Molly and Rita, the other sister, could not recognize Anna's face, but they did recognize the clothes that they had last seen her in. And Rita's husband, Bill, used a stick to open the corpse's mouth, revealing gold fillings, further identifying the corpse as Anna Brown. And it's hot down there, too. Oh, yeah. Can only imagine. Horrible thing to find. Um, just, they couldn't identify her face. So just a little bit about coroner's inquests at the time. They were rather rudimentary at best. Areas that were considered on the frontier weren't keen on police procedure. They felt too much interference, too much repression. And in Osage County and other areas like it, inquests were governed by the people. Citizens carried the burden of investigating crimes and maintaining that order. And right then and there, a jury of white men were selected, including Scott Mathias, and were charged with determining if Anna was killed by an act of God or by man. And if they all agreed to murder, they would be tasked with identifying the responsible party. So now it was time for an autopsy. Yep, impromptu, right on the spot, didn't move the body to a building. We're just going to have oh. the Schoen brothers, James and David, just come right on down. Oh, oh, <laughs> really? They're, yes. Oh. So they're physicians, and they had always attended Molly's family, and it was they who were going to perform this grim task. And even at that time, doctors knew a few things about death and decomposition. I know you're probably shocked and surprised. <laughs> but they figured she'd been dead for roughly five to seven days based on the state of her body. They couldn't find any evidence on her clothes, 
no fibers, no blood, no anything really. And when they moved the body, though, a part of her skull detached from the back of her head. And what they found there, too, was a bullet hole that was no wider than a pencil. So just like the width of a pencil, which was most likely a thirty-two caliber bullet. And based on the downward trajectory, Anna had been shot in the back of the head, execution style. What a horribly grim way to go. Really hope that she didn't realize what was coming. Well, I know they did find a bottle of moonshine at the scene. So I, I'm hoping that she was drinking and trying to have a good time as she always had liked to do. I really hope so. Make no mistake, this procedure is certainly not perfect, not by any means, but it has come a very long way. And during the time of the Osage murders, frontier lawmen were in charge. They were first and foremost gunmen. Shoot first. Don't even bother asking any questions. They were expected to deter crime and apprehend wanted suspects, not solve crimes. Sheriff Harvey M. Frias was 58 years old and damn near 300 pounds. He doesn't sound much like a lawman, but he was known as a terror to evildoers, but he just happened to turn a blind eye to gambling and bootlegging. I'm sure he probably liked to do those things. Probably. They were probably his vices, and so they were probably perfectly fine. They were okay. Mm-hmm. But Frias was already preoccupied with the discovery of Charlie Whitehorn's body, so he sent another deputy in his stead. And they tried to locate a bullet or a shell casing, something, but there's nothing near the body. However, they did notice that there was no exit wound from what caused Anna's wound. And I warn you, this is graphic. The Schoen brothers proceeded to remove Anna's brain from her skull, still right in front of everybody, and they poked at it with a stick to see if they could find a bullet. Oh, good lord. But guess what? Still no bullet. However, they did note, not the Schoen brothers, but other investigators, people at the scene, that there were two sets of tracks coming from the southeast, yet no casts of the marks were made. No fingerprinting, no gunpowder residue tests, not even a photograph was taken. But as we know, it's probably more or less contaminated by other people in this. All right, then. Now, back in 1892, they did take pictures of Lizzie Borden's family being killed. But here we are in the 1920s, and they're not taking photographs. Well, mind you, it's... It's a little bit of a different area, I would think, than the upper crust of Fall River, Massachusetts. I, I know, but it's still, you know, 20, 30 years later, you would think, but don't think. Don't, no, no, don't, We're don't do it. We're in the Wild West here. We are still there. We are still in the Wild West. Just spend any thoughts. You have to be in the moment, and they're poking her with a stick. That's... That's the quality of forensics at the time. Poking her with a stick. Here we are. In front of everybody. Yeah. Now, after that gruesome display there, Anna has to be buried. Mm -hmm. And while many of the Osage had given up a lot of their traditional beliefs, Lizzie, who is Molly and Anna's mother, she still held on to some of these beliefs. To all Osage, the birth of children was life's greatest blessing. Wakanta, a mysterious life force encompassing everything. The death of her first and favorite daughter must have meant that Wakanta 
had withdrawn his blessing that he had previously bestowed. Also adhering to Catholic beliefs, the funeral started at the Catholic Church and then proceeded to the cemetery where Anna would be buried. Just like many other white men, undertakers took advantage of the Osage to get their greedy hands on their money when it came to funeral services. The equivalent of $80,000 is what it costs to bury an Osage tribe member. At the cemetery, the lid was usually lifted one last time to say goodbye to the dead one. Unfortunately, due to decomposition of the body, Molly and her family were robbed of this final goodbye. They also couldn't paint her face with the sigils of their tribe and clan. This concerned Molly deeply as she felt her sister's spirit might get lost along the way to what they called the happy hunting ground. During the Osage prayer songs, Oda Brown, Anna's ex-husband, was so distraught that he left. Some wondered if his feelings were true anguish or just an act. Hmm. Now, the killings called a massive stir in the community. The Pawhuska Daily Capital headline was, Two separate murder cases are unearthed almost at the same time. Now, two bullets were taken from Whitehorn's skull, which appeared to be that same thirty-two caliber, the same ones used with Anna, and a coincidence that two wealthy Osage were killed at the same time. Maybe, maybe not. Could be a serial killer, or what they called a repeat killer. Was he the one responsible? Oh, hmm. makes you wonder. So, police really didn't seem to have much concern for a dead Indian woman or even a dead Indian man who was favored by both communities. Molly went to Ernest's uncle, William Hale, who was dubbed the King of the Osage Hills. And Hale had seemed to come out of nowhere, just for background purposes. He was once bankrupt. He took action and with hard work became profitable as a cattleman. And with those profits, he was able to buy more Osage territory until he had roughly amassed 45,000 acres to his name. And that was when William Hale became a high-class gentleman, a reserve deputy in the town of Fairfax, and politicians actively sought his support. He was considered the county's greatest benefactor, supporting charities with hospitals and schools. So yes, King of the Osage Hills sprouted up from nothing. And Hal had said, I never had better friends in my life than the Osages. With that, he vowed to find Justice Grant. And now many officials actually owed their elections to William Hal. He could be persuasive in turning the vote to the intended party. And that's just what he had done for the county prosecutor. And Hal remained close friends with the man. And had him look again for the bullet that had mysteriously disappeared from Anna's skull. A court order was granted to disinter Anna's corpse, and the Schoen brothers, who had performed the first autopsy, were called in again. And again, graphic, a meat cleaver was taken to Anna's head in efforts to find the bullet. But just as before, nothing was found. So where's the bullet? So they're poking at her in a ravine, and now with a meat cleaver. No sense of decorum or dignity. I just, it's outrageous. Well, Hale continues his own investigating, while Molly went to give evidence at a hearing in Fairfax. At the hearing, she was hardly asked any questions. Now, is this prejudice because she's a woman and an Osage? 
Don't know. I wonder. So Brian Burkhart was questioned more thoroughly. People had begun to talk because he was the last person to see her alive. But not necessarily a bad seed, but not really wholesome either. Now, his uncle, William Hale, had caught him stealing one time and pressed for charges to be set as an example. So Brian was detained after the hearing along with his brother Ernest. They wanted to make sure that Ernest wasn't covering for him. But they were both released to Molly's relief. And Ernest said, I don't know of enemies she had or anyone that disliked her. So they're not finding out a lot of information here. So that July, the Justice of Peace closed the investigation, stating that Anna Brown and Charlie Whitehorn had both been killed by, quote, parties unknown, close quote. And less than two months later, Lizzie, Anna and Molly's mother, one of the last vestiges of the Osage tribe and their traditions, passed on to be claimed by Jesus and Juan Canta. Molly's family had dwindled. Molly's brother-in-law, Bill Smith, was the first one to question Lizzie's death. Could it have been natural coming to her so soon after the unsolved murders of the two members of the tribe? It seemed that if old age wasn't what had taken the old woman, that she'd been poisoned. But Bill was sure that somehow connected to the oil swirling beneath their feet. Mm-hmm. So one pervasive theory was that the killer was an outsider. There are a few places that exhibited the lawlessness that laid siege to Osage County. The U.S. Justice Department advised that there were probably more fugitives taking refuge in Osage County than, quote, any other county in the state or any other state in the union, end hmm. quote. Another theory was that the killer was living among them. Could it really be one of them? Suspicion soon fell to Oda Brown and his ex-husband. His display of distraught emotion at the funeral felt more like an act, more fake than anything. And when Anna divorced him, she left him out of the will. And upon her death, he hired an attorney to contest the will, but he was unsuccessful in that venture. Well, isn't it always the husband? Usually. I don't know. He was not going to get anything here if she took him out of the will, though. Well, he tried to contest it. So maybe if he did do it, he's just being an idiot. But If he did it, he's not doing it the smart way. Correct. Yeah. And finally, though, a man in Kansas was arrested several weeks after the funeral. He was a bank forger. And he wrote to Sheriff Frias advising he could help solve the murder. No other details were given. The sheriff went immediately, followed by William Hale. And the young criminal stated that Brown had paid him $8,000 to get rid of Anna. Oh, really? really, apparently, is that he shot her in the back of the head and carried her down to where she lay. So, hmm. it's kind of news broke of Oda Brown's arrest, but hardly a relief as he had been practically one of their own. However, he was released due to lack of evidence to support the forger's confession. Hmm. So is it really a lack of evidence? Is it for police investigation? Do we have false confessions? I don't know yet. Paid off witnesses, who knows, right? All right, so a little bit of the history here. Molly was 10 years old when oil was first discovered. She remembered the rush to harness the precious commodity. Ownership of the land, though, was a tangled web. The land that they were on had been there since the 17th century, when they could claim much of the central part of the United States, and that was before the white man came. In 1803, 
when Thomas Jefferson made the Louisiana Purchase from France, which encompassed the lands that belonged to the Osage, he acknowledged that they must keep good company with them, for they were a great nation. Less than four years later, however, Thomas Jefferson upended the Osage and forced them to give up their lands between Arkansas and Missouri rivers. It was either sign the treaty and leave or become enemies of the state and most likely killed. So, what choice did they have? There's none. Right. So, over the next 20 years, the Osage had to relinquish roughly 100 million acres of their land, ultimately ending up in southeastern Kansas in a 50 by 125 square mile area. Small compared to their ancestral lands. I can't even imagine. It's tiny. All right. Molly's father was born in this area in 1844. He went by the Osage name of Nikahai Sei. He would go on and become a prominent member of the tribe. When the tribe created its first court system, he was elected as one of the three judges who presided. Now, Lizzie also grew up on the reservation. She and Nikahai's family would go on to a sacred buffalo hunt twice a year, where they would take all of their possessions and not return until a buffalo had been hunted and they would use all of its parts. When asked about adopting the white man's ways, the Osage chief remarked that he, at least, was perfectly content to supplied him with everything he needed. Now, the U.S. government told the Osage that the Kansas Reservation would be their forever home, but settlers moving west didn't see it that way. Here's kind of a fun fact. Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote Little House on the Prairie, was part of one of those families trying to take the Osage land by force. So everyone who enjoys that story, there's a little bit of a darker element to it. A little dark side to that, huh? Yes. With their houses and their cemeteries unfortunately pillaged, the Osage agreed to sell their lands for $1.25 an acre. <sighs> However, even with that agreement in place, many were still slaughtered by settlers trying to move west. So forced to move again, the Osage found new land near the end of the Trail of Tears. And the unoccupied area was hilly, it was rocky, and what white men called sterile. But an Osage chief, Watianka, advised that they wanted this land, roughly the size of the state of Delaware, because he knew that white men would not want it, and because they didn't want it, they would not come. So they purchased the land for 70 cents an acre, and they began moving the tribe. The town of Pawhuska, which we've mentioned already, was settled with a building for the Bureau of Indian Affairs built on top of one of its highest points. Great Horse was also established where Lizzie and Mikaisegi lived and were married in 1874. But due to the long trek and on top of introduced diseases, you know, smallpox, other fevers, that kind of thing, many of the tribe's people perished and only about 30,000 members remained. And this was roughly a third of the tribe that existed almost a century earlier. So now the Osage, they're still going on their sacred buffalo hunts. But by 1877, American buffalo were almost non-existent. And the government had actually issued a decree to settlers to destroy these animals, as they said, quote, every buffalo dead was an Indian gone, end quote. Absolutely terrible. And they also tried to force the Osage to assimilate to their way of life, essentially turning them all into Christian farmers. And while they also owed the Osage payments for the sale of their land, 
they wouldn't pay them until some of the tribesmen started to form. So it was basically a similarly, or you get nothing from us, even though we owe you. Like, this is awful. It's cultural genocide. Yes. Yeah. It's terrible. I hated reading this part of this book. Mm-hmm. But it unfortunately is our history. The government also concocted payments in terms of clothing and food rations, as if this is going to help them either, because they're not used to the white man's food either. They're very unaccustomed to the way that things were being done by the white man, and without the buffalo, many began to actually starve, and more of the tribe began to die. And Chief Watianka and others traveled to D.C. to appeal to the Bureau of Indian Affairs to get rid of this rationing system. They basically were trying to be dismissed when they got there. Watianka disrobed himself, and he was, like, fully dressed in his, like, breechcloth painted for base. Like, you look powerful, you look scary. And he said, no, we're here, you're going to hear us out. And needless to say, he made them listen, and the system was abolished. A small victory. Bravo for him. Mm -hmm. He said, no, we came all the way out here, you're going to listen to us. Exactly. Yeah, it's genocide. It's terrible. I I had a really hard time reading this part, even though, like, I I know it from history class, things Mm -hmm. like that. it's still very hard to read, especially because Grain is so detailed, and he he's a good reporter. He wants to give us every aspect, even regardless of how terrible that is. Yeah, he's honest. He hits the details. He's accurate. He's not exploiting it, but he's just telling you what happened. And it's terrible. Yeah, it is. So, Molly's parents first tried to maintain their customs, but it's getting increasingly difficult to do so. One of the most important rituals of the Osage was naming their children. Well, that's a big thing in every family, right? So it was only then that they were considered a person and one of the tribe. So Molly, Anna, Minnie, Rita all had Osage names, and they had been known by those names once. But when the settlers began moving in onto the reservation, then things began to change. The new settlers formed close ties with the Osage, almost encouraging them to assimilate so that they could survive. One settler, John Florer, opened the first trading post in Greyhorse in the late 1880s. Molly's father sold animal pelts out front. And one day, someone referred to Nikahasei as Jimmy. So soon, more people called him Jimmy, and then after that, he became known as Jimmy. And the same thing happened with Molly and her sisters. So they lost their Osage identity, their name. Just Terrible. Just was lost. When there definitely were some people who encouraging them to assimilate so they could survive. They were actually being nice people, even though it was taking away their identity and their cultural traditions. Yeah. You're doing the best you can in a really bad situation and helping people survive. It's still a lose-lose, even though you're getting the survival, which is a win. It's still very, it's terrible. So when when Molly was seven, her parents were told she had to enroll in the St. Louis School, an all-girls Catholic boarding school in Pahuska, a two-day's journey, and if she didn't go, the government would hold their annual annuity payments. So, off she went to school. When Molly got there, she couldn't speak Osage anymore. She had to learn English. 
and she had to remove her traditional garments and don a plain dress. Studies at the school were intended to teach Molly how to be a, quote, ideal woman. She would be taught the domestic arts, cooking, cleaning, essentially year-round home ec class. Boys in other schools like hers were being taught farming, carpentry, and other trades. Many girls from her school tried to escape, but they were always caught and brought back. After spending eight months away from their families and living at school, the students began to feel embarrassed by their parents and the old ways. So, first they're trying to escape because they don't want to do any of this. And then as they start to assimilate because they're not allowed to go home, once they finally able to do well home, don't embarrassed. It's very, very sad. Yeah, they start to identify with what they're living, which is more of a white world. That's just so sad. So at the turn of the 20th century, the government was pushing allotment of lands on all Native American tribes. And under this policy, the Osage Reservation would be divided into 160-acre lots, with each member of the tribe receiving one. The rest of the territory opened up to settlers. The goal of this allotment was twofold and the communal way of life, and make it easier to procure the land in the future from the Osage. So regarding Cherokee land, this was an example that Grand gave us. The country witnessed something that was, I can't say anything about this, it was certified nuts. Mm -hmm. Absolutely insane. It was a race to claim the land. Whoever got there first, it was theirs. So literally, it's like when they opened Saratoga, the racetrack. Yeah. And they open up during race season, and all the tables that you don't pay for up for grabs. Literally, I call it the running of the bulls. Yeah. You go grab it. As soon as you throw something on it, it's yours. <laughs> this is a little bit more insane. So, on September 16, 1893, the race began. Grant said that no pen could do it justice. Men were fighting to the death over these parcels of land the bodies of men, women, children, and horses littered the field. And at the end of it, the Cherokee land was divided before the sun had gone down. Luckily, for the Osage, they had purchased their land, so the policy of allotment was much harder to enforce. And one chief, James Bigheart, was able to stall the process. And in 1904, he sent a lawyer named John Palmer, who was half Sioux but adopted by an Osage family as a child, he sent him to D.C., and for months, Palmer was able to negotiate terms on the Osage behalf, finally getting the government to agree to dividing the territory solely among members of the tribe. So each allotment was actually increased from 169 acres to 657 acres. Glad to hear that part. You know, just a little personal note. My husband is part Cherokee. His grandmother was a full-blooded Cherokee, and uh, she left the reservation and met his grandfather, who is a Scottish-American. Now we have her descendant, my husband, Dan. And unfortunately, she died before we met, because I really would have loved to have talked about this history and uh, the reservation life with her. Definitely have done something to hear. Yeah. And so the tribe actually had an idea about the oil that was underneath them. They already had a few small wells up and running, which was partially one of the reasons that they were fighting hard for this allotment, too. They wanted to maintain that. No one had a clue just how much oil there was going to be. 
But nevertheless, Palmer was also able to throw in a clause to their agreement that states, quote, that the oil, gas, coal, or other minerals covered by the lands are hereby reserved to the Osage tribe. I'm clapping. <laughs> known as the Mineral Trust. And any Osage on the tribal roll received a stake in the trust which could only be inherited. Inherited could not be bought, could not be sold. And this was part of the first underground reservation. The tribe would lease more areas to white men, prospectors who were looking for black gold. But they would still receive part of the money for whoever they leased it to. And it was spring of 1917 when Frank Phillips struck oil on Lot 185, and it just kept coming. And it changed everything. Better and for the world. <laughs> yeah, true. So Molly and her family had money at their disposal, and as police weren't searching for the perpetrators of the crimes against the Osage, against the Indians, their recourse was to put up a reward, as well as hire private investigators. There was money up for the grabs, and anyone offering information that led to the killer, $2,000 from Molly's family, $2,500 from Charles Whitehorn's family, and an undetermined amount of money from William Hale. Given the inconsistency of law enforcement, for example, Sheriff Freeze was under investigation for allowing bootlegging and therefore more focused on keeping himself out of jail than solving crimes, private investigators would wind up filling the gap. And David Graham writes, detect is derived from the Latin verb unroof. And because the devil, according to the legend, allows his henchmen to peer voyeuristically into houses by removing the roofs, detectives became known as the devil's disciples. I love that. I do, too. That's so cool. It's a little fun fact in there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 1850, Alan Pinkerton, might recognize that name, founded the first American private detective agency. The company motto, We Never Sleep, was written under a large, unblinking Masonic eye. And this is where we get the term private eye. Well, that's a fun fact. That is. Detectives had to resort to deception in order to uncover the truth. It wasn't uncommon for one to break and enter into locked homes or offices or to lie to someone to garner the truth or even fabricate evidence if it came down to it. Now, that would be wrong. Some bad things to deception. Yeah, there, there were. While law enforcement and the Bureau of Indian Affairs were on the case, trying to solve the murders, the Osage and their supporters were hiring private eyes. Hale recruited a man named Pike, who hung around for a few days and then kind of disappeared. Anna's estate, manned by Scott Mathias as her guardian, hired a team of PIs. What do we mean guardians? Well, Okay. The United States government believed that the Osage couldn't handle their own affairs, including their money. Therefore, the Bureau of Indian Affairs had determined which tribe members could manage themselves. And many were found to be incompetent and were entrusted to the care of a white guardian who authorized any and all spending. And of course, selected guardians of the Osage tended to be white citizens. Prominent ones, right. Absolutely appalling. We're going to decide you're incompetent because 
you're Osage, and you're wealthy. And the the less full-blooded you were, the more likely you would be found to be competent to handle your own money. But if you were full-blooded, you could not. So my in-laws, if they were Osage, might not be competent? Mm-hmm. Hmm, think about that one. Yeah. So most of the detectives working for the Osage had previously worked under William J. Burns International Detective Agency, learning from a man who became more famous than even Pinkerton himself. Burns was described as a short, stout man with a luxuriant mustache and a shock of red hair. Burns knew what he was doing, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, dubbed Burns as America's Sherlock Holmes, which I'm sure he just absolutely ate up. <laughs> However, there was a sinister side to Burns and other PIs, as we talked about before. Lines were crossed, breaking and entering, rigging juries, stealing. And this was all to get to the end of the puzzle and paid for solving what they seek out to solve. And so for Matthias, the team that he hired to solve Anna's murder, they were actually identified with a coded number. So no names were really used. It was just like Agent 1, Agent 2. And so we had Agent 10, who discovered a few things. No one had searched Anna's home. Her purse was found lying in the middle of the room with contents strewn about. No one searched her home. She's dead. No one searches her home. Okay. Brian, Molly's brother-in-law, had been telling the truth. But had she left with him afterwards? Well, someone had actually phoned Anna around 8.30 p.m. that night based on phone call records. So we have Agent 10 actually doing detective work. Hmm. She'd answered the phone, so Brian was more or less off the hook. So number 10 actually traveled to the town of Ralston where the phone call originated. But it seemed the operator may have been paid to destroy the original ticket. Someone was certainly trying to cover their trail, if anything. Mm-hmm. Number 10 then turned his attention to Oda Brown. And a week later, another agent, Agent 46, was sent on this wild chase to locate Brown. He finally found him in Pawnee County, with a Pawnee woman who reported being married after Anna's death. And after a few days of shadowing the pair, Number 46 finally spoke to Brown, trying to confront him. Number 46 tried to elicit Brown's whereabouts when Brown had said his former wife had been murdered but Brown remained tight-lipped on the subject. Well, I'm sorry it wasn't more productive, but that is so cool that they have code names. Agent 10, Agent 46, sneaking around, investigating. I'm just happy that they're following leads. And they actually are following leads, and they are tracking people to see where they're going and who they're hanging out with. And I do wonder at Oda's big you know, emotional grieving and mourning at Anna's funeral, and then he turns around and marries another woman? Hmm. Just like that? Hmm. Meanwhile, another operative, number 28, learned of a possible scenario to Anna's death from a young caught Indian woman. She told 28 that a woman named Rose Osage had shot and killed Anna in cold blood while they were out on a car ride after she learned Anna had tried to seduce her boyfriend, Joe Allen. They dumped the body in the creek, and Rose had thrown her blood-splattered clothes into the creek. However, there was no evidence to back up the informant's story. Was she out to get the reward? Maybe. Sheriff Reyes, whose trial was still pending, requested that the private detectives leave Rose and Joe off the suspect list. Leave them off. Hmm. But in doing so, he offered an additional story. 
Two men from the oil camps were seen with Anna before her death and probably skipped town when her body was discovered. However, the detectives kind of knew better and they weren't going to give up on the Rose theory. You know, if someone told me to leave somebody off the list, that would be more reason for putting them on the list. Mm -hmm. Right? Correct. Now, Bill Smith wasn't going to give up on his investigation either, but there were issues with this man himself. Now, Molly didn't trust him, and neither did Hal. Bill had first been married to Minnie, Molly's sister, and she had passed from that mysterious wasting illness. Then he turns around and married Rita, the other sister, shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. So is this guy the only catch in town? Maybe. I gotta wonder. (laughs) It's known that Bill is not a pleasant husband, but his crusade to find his sister-in-law's killer did seem to be a valiant effort. Okay. So he and one of the private eyes got wind of this Rose rumor, and therefore a listening device was installed in Rose and Joe's home to see what they could find out. I was impressed that they had listening devices, quite frankly. Yep. Took me aback a bit. We're not doing fingerprints, we're not taking photos, but we're tapping people's homes. Yeah. I was like, okay, good for them. So, now, Burns was one of the first in his field to see the promise of listening devices, and he saw it as this essential tool in solving crimes. He was spot on there. Hoover loves the tap. (laughs) Yes, yes. However, after listening for some time, the detectives just got bored. And perhaps a break in the case, or maybe not, but a cab driver who had taken Anna home that night was questioned. And it turns out that Anna told him she was going to have a child. And the story was corroborated by some of Anna's closest friends. Anna was pregnant. And as to the father, no one had a damn clue. Hmm. So, people are showing up dead, vanishing bullets, code names, mystery babies. Oh, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Now, there is a man, A.W. Comstock, who is a local attorney and a guardian for several Osage. And he had once been investigated by Burns for an alleged oil scheme. But now, they enlisted his help due to his many connections among the Osage. And it seemed there was a rumor floating around. Hattie Whitehorn was jealous of her husband, Charles, and the alleged affair with another woman. Now, was that other woman... Anna was Whitehorn, the father of Anna's child, and that was why the two of them were dead. Can you imagine if they tied it together, there probably wouldn't have been any further investigation? (laughs) Yep. Nothing results from following Hattie about, so that this lead runs cold. And nine months after the deaths of Anna and Charles, there are sadly no leads. In February 1922, Hale's private investigator, Pike, he left. Sheriff Flees was kicked out of office for failing to enforce the law, and no other suspects had presented themselves. However, one night that same month, a 29-year-old Osage champion steer roper named William Stepson receives a call at home, which prompts him to leave his wife and two children. And when he returns a few hours later, he is visibly ill and collapses. Later that night, He's dead. Another Osage dead. Law enforcement believes that Stepson had been given a healthy dose of strychnine, 
a white alkaloid poison that is really the most deadly poison out there. It's a neurotoxin that affects the brain's neurotransmitters, acetylcholine and glycine, and it basically shuts down the muscles that are needed for respiration. Stepson's last hours would have been extremely terrible for him and his family, violent spasms and ultimately suffocating to death. At the time, there were forensic methods that could be employed to determine poisoning, yet they were applied even less frequently than the fingerprinting and the ballistics techniques. National Research Council would say that most county coroners were untrained and unskilled. Therefore, poison was a perfect way to commit a murder. Gee, does, does that sound familiar? Does he poison? Using poisons? Uh, the effect of poison could also mimic some natural ailments. So, Grant gives us a few examples. Nausea, diarrhea of cholera, and seizure, a heart attack. Poison could also be slipped into moonshine, and because moonshine was pretty volatile and dangerous, you know, nobody would be the wiser. All right, so now we're up to March 26th, 1922, which was less than a month later. Another Osage woman was dead due to a suspected poisoning. No toxicology labs were performed. Uh. And on July 28th, a 30-year-old man named Joe Bates, another Osage tribe member, dropped dead from drinking contaminated whiskey. The deaths of the wealthy Osage began to rise. A man named Barney McBride was approached to travel to D.C. and speak on behalf of the Osage. He was considered a friend of the tribe and had taken a strong interest in Indian affairs, and therefore he was the ideal candidate to send a message. Upon arriving to his room, he had a telegram from a friend urging him to beware. On that night, having stopped at an Elks Club to play some pool, McBride was mad from behind when he was leaving had a sack thrown over his head, and was stabbed over 20 times by multiple assailants. His beaten, stabbed, and naked body was found in a culvert in Maryland. And news of that murder spread quickly was described as one of the most violent in D.C. The Washington Post ran a headline, Conspiracy Believed to Kill Rich Indians. And I can't help it. So what do they do about that headline? What is the action that they take? This is completely outrageous. And this is where I'm talking to myself when I'm reading, and my husband's looking at me like I'm crazy and I scare the cat. Yep. That's what happens. That's why this book is so wonderful, though. Because you're so engrossed in it. You are living with these people going through this mystery. Mm -hmm. And who killed this guy? Who sent him the note warning him? Who was that? It just said a friend. Someone who knew what was coming down and didn't agree with it. Who is that person? Yep. So, unfortunately, someone trying to help the Osage gets taken out in the process. So, another interesting thing, these oil field allotments, four times a year they have these auctions that are run by the Department of the Interior in Osage County. The crap ones went first, but the best leases were last to be taken by the oil barons. And in nice weather, the auctions were held underneath this tree called the Million Dollar Elm in Pasca. And prominent settlers took interest in the auctions, as Grant explains, because money was coming in from the oil boom, and it helped build their businesses and ultimately turn their dreams into a reality. The area would continue to grow, and they wanted to be a part of it. And as one paper said, quote, fortunes were being made and lost daily, end quote. Some of the money from big oil was starting to steer the course of history. 
Harry Sinclair had his hand in financing a successful run for Warren Harding and getting into the White House as president. In exchange, Sinclair and his cohorts would have access to the Navy's oil reserves. And this, of course, is all backdoor dealings. Yeah, that was the Teapot Dome scandal. And they'd have, that would drive Warren Harding completely crazy. He was just this this nice guy who really looked presidential but did not have the brains for it. So he would read the speeches they put in front of him, and he's going to die of a stroke. That it was a good thing, honestly. I mean, the poor man. He was so betrayed by everybody that he was like, oh, my God, I was worried about my enemies. It's my friends I had to be worried about. It's, it's yeah. a rough quote from him when he was finding out all of this that was going down. Terrible. Olivia sounds like she doesn't like it either. As she was crying to come in, I figured she'd be quiet. We had a discussion, but, you know, when you tell a cat they have to be quiet and be good, what do they do? They continue. She's just a co-host now. She's entered as the host. Yep. It's uh, Tara Jill and Olivia. So on January 18th, 1923, the auction was being held inside the Constantine Theater in Pawhuska. The initial tracks sold for about $600 each. And after lunch, they were being sold for $600,000 each. One track near an oil well known as Burbank, an oil-rich part of the territory, went up and was sold for $1.1 million. Graham points out that every new auction would hold a record for the single highest bid and the amount of money collected overall. One track of the land would go for $2 million, and the highest collected was at $14 million. A reporter kindly pointed out, that the Osage Indians are becoming so rich that something will have to be done about it. What do you mean? Explain that one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. As we mentioned previously, the Osage were appointed guardians as the government felt that they were incompetent to handle their own funds, which is completely, completely reprehensible. Things were getting out of hand, however. Many Americans believe that the Osage spent money willy-nilly, that they were not financially responsible. And this led to this growing alarm that many white people who felt the Osage were good for nothing, who attended wealth simply because the government relocated them upon oil fields, which white man developed for them. However, there are rare accounts that mention that the Osage were actually fiscally responsible and invested their money skillfully. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. So. In deciding to appoint guardians, the Osage became half-citizens. A full American Indian was most definitely appointed a guardian, whereas a half-blood or mixed-blood was not. Just makes my blood boil. A quote from Graham that really struck with me was that members of Congress would gather in wood-paneled committee rooms and spend hours examining in minute detail the Osage expenditures as if the country's security was at stake. There are things going on that are more important. Like the Teapot Dome scandal? Yes. Like, go focus on government corruption and leave these people alone to live their lives? You would think. Uh, yeah, you would. I would. Oh, there were still those that would argue that the Osage spent their money in the same way that rich white men did, but unfortunately that fell on deaf ears. With that, new restrictions were added where these guardians could withdraw only a few thousand dollars annually. And this didn't account for education or medical bills. 
So Molly was a full-blooded Osage, but at least her husband, Bernus, was her guardian. That prejudice in evidence is so blatant, but it was so accepted, so normal, which makes it so appalling. And this is what really upset me while reading through this, that this is what the Osage had to deal with, which left them so vulnerable to these predators. And it's just really a shameful part of our history. I would definitely agree. Yeah, really good. So in February of 1923, a car was found at the bottom of a ravine. Now, deputies thought that the driver must have been drunk. And on closer inspection, though, they found blood everywhere. A man had been shot in the back of the head, seemingly execution style. No weapon was found. Suicide could definitely be ruled out. And the deceased was 40-year-old Henry Rowan a Osage tribe member with a wife and two kids. They could easily identify the body as the cold had mummified the corpse, and the features were unmistakable. William Hale was called, and in addition to the other authorities, as Henry Roan had considered Hale one of his closest friends. So close, in fact, that Hale often advanced him cash when he couldn't get it from his guardian. Hale was also a beneficiary in Roan's life insurance policy, Roan had recently learned that his wife was having an affair, and he asked Hale to borrow some money so that he could buy some moon liquor and get drunk. He wanted to drink his woes away. Well, I, I can understand that. It's not unusual if you find out that there's some infidelity around. I find it sad that this man, who is wealthy beyond comparison, has to ask a man for the money to spend on a bottle of liquor. Yeah, it's, it's appalling. Probably he would have to ask his guardian and explain why he wants to make this purchase. I would definitely agree. Hale told him to beware of the Prohibition men, and that was when Roan disappeared. He had been missing for a few weeks before his body was found, and the ever-present Schoen brothers determined that he was killed roughly ten days beforehand. Those are the doctors, the two doctors. Carlos. The lawman noted the position of the body, the fact that there were still valuables on his person, and the tread marks of an unknown vehicle nearby. I don't think the Sean brothers did anything appalling to any of the other bodies. Well, maybe they were told not to after, like, pulling her brain out. I hope so. God! So the news of Rowan's death hit Molly particularly hard. You see, in another life, before she was told she could marry for love, she'd actually been married to Henry, albeit she was 15 years old and the marriage was very, very brief. As it was under Osage law, a legal divorce wasn't actually necessary, and they just went their separate ways. She had never told her husband Ernest about this, and she certainly wasn't going to. Ernest was a bit of a jealous type, and she didn't want to open that can of worms, obviously. She'd have to admit deceit, and therefore she kept her mouth shut to him and the police as well. One possible lead, though, was a bootlegging farm that was run by a former rodeo star turned alleged train robber, turned kingpin, running illegal stills in Osage County. Remember, Roan wanted moon liquor, and that's most likely where he got it from. Mm. So Molly and her family pressed on in hoping to find the killer of killers, and the climate of fear just continued to grow. The Osage would hang lights outside their homes to brighten the dark. Um, and one book that I really want to get to is The Night Assassin, where they light towers to keep it like basically in broad daylight, even at midnight. 
And these lights had a popular nickname called the frayed lights. So afraid minus the afraid lights. Mm -hmm. But it was just a way to kind of try to protect people while they're outside at night. And about a month after Rome's death, Bill and Rita abruptly moved from their home, leaving behind most of their belongings after hearing strange noises outside on multiple occasions. Could they be next? So the house that they bought was actually uh, formerly owned by Dr. Jacob Schoen, one of the brothers performing musical autopsies, but who was also a close friend of Rita's. Remember, the Schoen brothers were physicians of uh, Molly and Rita's family. And shortly after moving in, a strange man showed up inquiring about farmland that Bill was selling. Solomon farmland. So Bill became unnerved. He told the man he was mistaken and asked him to leave. And not much more time passed before neighborhood dogs actually started dying, and it appeared that they'd been poisoned. And Bill was convinced and was heard to say that he didn't expect to live very long. Oh boy. Well, he was right. Boom! The night of March 9th, a loud explosion rocks the sleeping town of Fairfax. Bill and Rita's house was reduced to rubble and a tangled metal mess from an apparent bomb that had been detonated underneath the house. Dr. Schoen, who had recently sold them the house, knew just where the master bedroom should have been and led the gathered search party to where Bill and Rita would have been sleeping. They heard cries for help, and digging through, they found Bill. His body was blackened from the heat of the blast. Rita looked peaceful, but when they tried to move her, they discovered that the back of her skull was crushed. She was gone. They got Bill to the hospital as quickly as they could, and after two days in the hospital, he did regain consciousness and asking, where where was Rita? Where where's, where's Rita? And he was questioned about the bombing, but nothing fruitful was revealed. Two days later, four days after the bombing, Bill passed on. Another death added to the Osage Reign of Terror. Molly Burkhart was the remaining daughter of her family, and she's afraid. She locked herself inside, stopped going to church, and in poor health, Molly gave away her newest child to be raised by a family member. You have to be scared to death to start giving your children away. Mm -hmm. Good Lord, this poor woman. In late 1925, an agent from the Office of Indian Affairs received a report. Molly wasn't dying of diabetes, as they all had thought. No, no, it's something much more sinister than that. She's being poisoned, too. All right, who did this? We've got Minnie, Anna, Rita, and now Molly. Oh, my God. What the hell? Bill thought she's being poisoned, so her whole family has literally been taken out by someone. Yep, and she's on her way. And not to mention the slew of other deaths that we've already talked about. What the hell? So let's talk a little bit about corruption, because we know this is going on. Oh, my goodness. Yep. So there's a lawyer and former private detective named Herman Fox Davis, who was sent to Osage County by Governor Jack Bolton. So he's the governor of Oklahoma. And formerly having worked for the Birds Agency, Davis showed up in April 1923. And not more than a couple months later, he's actually arrested and pleading guilty to bribery. This is a considerable disappointment to POC, who believed an outside party would cut through any of that corruption that was continuously plaguing the investigation. 
Now, Davis was pardoned by Governor Jack Walton and released from a sentence, only to receive a life sentence later on for robbery and murder. So he went away to prison for life. And Governor Walton was also impeached later that year for abusing the system of pardons and goals, in addition to receiving bribes from an oil man. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of that going on. And so we also have another crusader who is going to try to help out the DOC. She's friends with a few of them. And his name is W.W. Vaughn, and he's a 50-year-old lawyer living in Pahuska who had vowed to end this corruption surrounding the Osage murder cases. She'd been working closely with the investigators throughout the investigation, and Vaughn also happened to be really, really good friends with the great Chief Bakehart. The chief was actually rushed to the hospital one day, suffering from guess what? Poisoning. No. Really? Yeah, go figure. <laughs> but he apparently had information about the murders, and Vaughn was the only one he was going to speak to. So Vaughn rushed to the hospital, rushed to his friend's side, and wanted to listen to what Bakehart had to say. And he stayed at Bakehart's side until he passed. And Vaughn called the sheriff of Osage County to tell him that he knew who had killed Bakehart, and he knew much, much more. But he'd be back soon to reveal everything didn't reveal anything over the phone. And unfortunately, Vaughn was a nigger. You knew where that was going when he made the phone call. Don't make the phone call, man. He boarded the train, disappeared from the train. He didn't arrive at the train station. And shortly after, his broken, naked body was found north of Oklahoma City. He'd been thrown from the train. And everything he had to support the investigation into the Osage murders was gone taken by parties responsible. And there were certainly others who tried to help. One was a renowned Osage rancher, suspected of being drugged. He fell down a flight of stairs. Another was shot in Oklahoma City on his way to speak with state officials. And even due to threats, the Justice of the Peace actually stopped any inquest into the murders. And the new sheriff told people that he wasn't even going to get mixed up in it. So now everyone is just very, very afraid to even try to help. So the new sheriff expects to have life expectancy if he does not touch this thing. Mm-hmm. This is just sad. It, it's, oh, again, this is where I'm talking to myself as well. So Graham writes that the world's richest people per capita were becoming the world's most murdered. At the end of part one of the book, the official death toll has risen to at least 24 members of the tribe, and those who had tried to assist. The government was needed. It was then when agents of the Justice Department, soon to be known as the FBI, were sent down to Osage County to investigate. After 24 millionaires are killed, let, let's just think about that for a moment. 24 millionaires are murdered. Just like that. Just gone. Do you think, you know, People might be saying, yeah, there's something really, something smells really bad here. So, the evidence men, they're going to come into play here. Now, Theodore Roosevelt had launched the Bureau back in 1908 to hopefully fill the gap with the federal law enforcement and jurisdiction, which was limited. And they handled a mix of odd crimes such as antitrust and banking violations, interstate shipment of stolen cars, contraceptives, 
prize-fighting films, escapes from federal prisons, crimes committed on Indian reservations. Well, there you are. All right. The way Hoover ran the Bureau was that they were all strictly fact-gatherers, that they had no power to arrest anyone, and they were authorized to never carry guns. How are they going to solve anything? Yeah. So, this is a limited FBI than what we're accustomed to dealing with. So, in the summer of 1925, we're introduced to Tom White, who is the special agent in charge of the Bureau of Investigation's field office in Houston, Texas. And he receives an order from J. Edgar Hoover to get to D.C. Stat. All right, Hoover had an idea that he wanted to get all of his agents to look and act like he wanted them to be specifically American. They're going to be white, lawyerly, and professional. Now, Tom White is a cowboy. He's a former railroad detective. He's old school. He's a Texas ranger in another life. All right, so Graham writes that he stands six foot four, had sinewy limbs, and an eerie composure of a gunslinger. I'm not sure he quite has that lawyerly, professional, I'm sorry, I'm thinking nerdy, look that J. Edgar Hoover's going for. But maybe it's just me and my interpretation. So, White had joined the Bureau in 1917 after he was barred from serving in World War I due to a recent surgery. And he had a younger brother who was a former Texas Ranger, J.C. Doc White. And they called him Doc, although they didn't work together. He and Tom were part of a small group in the Bureau known as the Cowboys. And most of these old-timers had zero formal training and struggled with new methods, but were adept at investigation and turning leads into clues and clues into stories. He's an interesting character, and I just, I just, I love Tom White. So Tom had seen corruption in the Bureau as it had been run under Attorney General William Burns. And in the summer of 1924, when President Calvin Coolidge was elected and he cleaned house, he got rid of Burns and replaced him with a man named Harlan Fisk Stone. He was forceful in his belief that a national police force was necessary, but the whole agency needed to be turned upside down. So he wanted to clean this thing out. And while he searched for a permanent replacement, Stone put 29-year-old J. Edgar Hoover in charge as acting director. Now, we all know how Hoover was with private surveillance and had managed to keep that hidden. Stone was so impressed by his efforts that later in the year, he named Hoover as the permanent director of the Bureau of Investigation, something that I'm sure Hoover was greatly happy to receive. Oh, yeah. Now, Tom was one of the first agents to be assigned to a corruption case. He took over as warden of the federal prison in Atlanta, and after witnessing a scuffle between some guards and an inmate, White threatened to have all of the guards fired if they abused any of the prisoners again. Bravo. Yes. This ingratiated himself to the prisoners who felt they just might get a square deal, but they knew he was on their side. And they started passing along information to him, which uncovered this system of gilded favoritism and millionaire immunity. And because of this, White was able to indict and convict the former warden based on the evidence he was able to obtain. Needless to say, Tom was on Hoover's good side, even if he didn't match up with Hoover's ideal version of an FBI agent. And that was what Hoover needed from him. 
to literally save his ass. Someone had screwed up on an investigation down in Osage County, Oklahoma. Hoover had tried to ditch the case. However, agents had struck a deal with the new governor of Oklahoma to release this convict named Black Thompson to help them do some undercover work. But agents had lost him, and he proceeded to rob a bank and also kill a police officer in the process. Oh, that's so, bad. Stuff marks on the FBI from investigation. That's bad. Yeah. yeah. So luckily for Hoover, the matter was being held out of the press, but underneath the surface within the government, tensions were getting to a breaking point. Hoover looked at Tom and said, I want you to direct this investigation. Oh boy. Now remember from the top of the episode, White had no doubt what would happen to him if he didn't succeed. Previous agents on the case had been banished to distant outposts or cast from the Bureau entirely. Hoover had said there can be no excuse offered for failure. Yeah, you can say that again. White was also aware that several of those who had tried to catch the killers had they themselves been killed. The moment he walked out of Hoover's office, he was a marked man. Yeah, you can Mm -hmm. say that again. So roughly four years had passed in Osage County before White showed up. The files were a mountain of dead leads, theories, and even more suspects. The brutality and the lawlessness took Tom's breath away. White struggled to focus on the details to find some common link, but all he found was rich Osage Indians being murdered. And three, Anna Brown, Rita Smith, Lizzie, were blood-related. Tom didn't believe that this was a repeat killer, that early term for a serial killer, because there were too many methods in which the murders were committed, no pattern, no signature. The bodies were widespread, indicating not one killer, but multiple. White needed some unbroken chain of evidence, and that required weeding out the truth from the fiction. They were on to something even back then. Yeah. Yep. So this is where the fun begins. Yeah. Began putting his, oh, yeah. Tom began putting his team of agents together. Cue that song, Secret Agent Man. I'm not singing it. <laughs> he was going to be the face of the investigation, but everyone was going to have to assume a new identity and go undercover. Is this more Mission Impossible? I don't know. <laughs> but first up, we have a former sheriff from New Mexico. Skill. Undercover identities. As Grand wrote, having pretending to be everything from a cow wrestler to a counterfeiter. That's who this guy was. He could be anything. Second, a former Texas Ranger. Skill. Super experienced deep cover ops. Third member of the team, an agent who was a former insurance salesman. Skill. Selling insurance policies. But I love that. That's so <laughs> true. We'll see. And finally, John Wren, who was previously a spy in the Mexican Revolution and was also part Native American from the Ute tribe, rounded out the team. It was said that he was gifted in the art of investigation, but he just didn't like doing paperwork. Who likes doing paperwork? Hoover loved paperwork. Doing it, but Hoover said as long as he does his paperwork, he can be on the team. But Tom White also had to keep one agent from the previous investigation, and that man was John Berger. He was experienced in the ins and outs of the case, 
with a developed confidential informant roster, he'd be another face in the investigation alongside White. In addition to Frank Smith, who Grant wrote, who, quote, listed his interests thus, pistol and rifle practice, big game hunting, game fishing, mountain climbing, adventures, and last but not least, manhunting. The gang of cowboys then descended on Osage County. Manhunting? Those are your interests. Mm -hmm. Number one. Okay. So down in Osage, an elderly cattleman showed up one day, covered for a former sheriff. The former Texas Ranger popped in next, disguised as a rancher. That former insurance man? Well, he was fronting as an insurance man. He set up shop in Fairfax, <laughs> selling real insurance policies. <laughs> and finally, Ren came on the scene as an Indian medicine man intent on finding some relatives. Guess what? Gang's all here. The cattleman and the rancher made nice with William Hale. Ren attended tribal gatherings, and the insurance man rang the doorbells of suspects trying to sell insurance. I friggin' love it. The guys in normalcy. This is a witch's brew. Now for all the undercover efforts, we're about to run into a little problem. Not the first and not the last, but guess what? We have records that, poof, magically disappeared. Yep, the death records of Anna Brown were gone. Hardly any evidence remained except the one thing the undertaker kept. Her skull. Oh, Tom deduced, just as the others had, that the bullet causing the damage was a small thirty-two or thirty-eight caliber pistol. He also noticed that it was odd that the bullet would be missing, considering there was no exit wound. The bullet should have been impossible to miss, unless someone had cleared up after the one who had pulled the trigger. Had one of the Schoen brothers taken it? Hmm. Whoever had it was certainly wanting to hide something. Those doctors are shady, man. Relying on Berger, White was able to rule out Oda Brown and his ex. His alibi of being with another woman appeared to check out. Lucky for him, off the list. The forger who implicated him also admitted to making up the story so that he could receive better prison arrangements. Other suspects were systemically eliminated. Oil workers, even Rose Osage and her boyfriend, now husband Joe. Feel good for them. Congratulations. Wedded bliss. Rose was a bit tough to crack, but the feds were able to get a confidential informant, Kelsey Morrison, to ingratiate himself with the pair and other CD types. Rose told Morrison that she simply didn't do it, and that was taken as truth. The disinformation surrounding Rose Osage came from one source, the Kaw Indian. Under interrogation, she cracked. Rose had never told her anything, and she did say, though, that while a strange white man had come to her home with a written document of a statement that she provided to the other agents and had forced her to sign it even though she knew it to be false. Well, shit. Not only were these parties responsible covering up evidence, they were also generating many of the rumors themselves. And the agents hadn't yet spoke to Molly, who was the lone survivor. I haven't spoken to her yet. I'm sure we'll hear about it next time, because that concludes part one of our series on Chillers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. 
So tune in next time where we're going to take a deeper dive into the Bureau of Investigation's search for the killer or killers. What they find will shock you. The sinister conspiracy that permeated the upper echelon of Osage County. It's crazy. It madness. You will not believe it. So while you're waiting for our next episode, get started on our next book, Gone by Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lane by Jake Anderson. Ever seen that crazy, weird fourth season of American Horror Story, Hotel, where everyone who died at the Hotel Cortez had to remain there forever? Yeah, that hotel. Well, that hotel is based on a real-life hotel, L.A.'s own Cecil Hotel. And that is where Elisa Lam, a 21-year-old student from Vancouver, was last seen on January 31st, 2013. A week later, her body was found in the water tank on top of the roof after guests complained of a foul smell. The only clue was a surveillance video that was uploaded to YouTube that I'm sure you may or may not seen as a murder bookie or part of the true crime community. So many questions were raised, yet no answers. And Jake Anderson writes in detail regarding discoveries of Elisa Lamb, who she was, and what she was potentially running from. Join us as we discuss Anderson's book, which presents new evidence that just may happen to reopen this case. Thank you for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara at com. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. Let our episode pop right into your feed. And if you can please leave us that five-star review, we'd love seeing your feedback. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Stay safe.